Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. I have something special that I want to talk to you about today. I just want to speak from the heart for a minute about this. You guys know that Real Vision is more than just a job for me. It's a huge part of my life. It's an honor to get to do this, to get to create content and to interact with all of you. One of the amazing things about working at Real Vision is that we are all constantly forcing ourselves to grow, always experimenting with new things. This is one of them that I want to talk to you about today. We've all been blown away by the response to Raoul's video, the past, present, and future of Real Vision. If you're a Real Vision member and you haven't seen it yet, go check it out on the platform. It's called The Past, Present, and Future of Real Vision. This is about to be the future of our platform, and we want to bring you into the conversation. Talking of which, let me read a couple of comments from Real Vision members on this video already. The first comes to us from Kevin K. Couldn't be more proud of all the innovation and risks RV is taking in order to be a leader. Will be a lifelong RVer. Thank you, Kevin. We appreciate that. From contributor David S., it makes my head spin. Real Vision is going mission exponential. Always appreciate your feedback, DLS. Uh, so this is what we're doing right now, and I want to walk you through every day we're going to feature a new feature here on Real Vision, talking about what's happening on the Real Vision platform. Today what I want to talk to you about is networking. This is about the ability to connect between Real Vision members uh, and through Real Vision staff with Real Vision members. This is something that I think is going to be just incredibly useful and incredibly powerful. Right now on the platform, we've got a kind of traditional comment system where you can go uh, and post comments, of course, on our videos. But under the new system, it's going to be much more interactive. There's going to be notifications. I think this is going to facilitate the conversation on Real Vision, which is really what matters most to us, getting the network engaged, getting our members engaged in the conversation, some really cool functionality coming there soon. And as I said, for the rest of the week, we're going to be featuring a new feature every day to tell you about what's coming. Here's why this all matters to you. Prices at Real Vision, like so many other things in our economy, are about to go up. If you're already a Real Vision member, you can lock in your current membership at 50% off, or better yet, if you're so inclined, level up to uh, the next level before July 24th. Here's where you can go to check out all of this. You can get all the details, figure out which level is best for you. Realvision.com forward slash level up, all lowercase. That's realvision.com forward slash level up, all lowercase. Please go check it out on the platform now. Get the information about what's happening in Real Vision. I think you're gonna find it really cool. I know that I do. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. Michael Clark, thank you so much for joining us here on Real Vision. How are you today? Very good, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Honestly, it's a real thrill, I have to say. It's a thrill for me too, and I am deeply excited about the conversation we are about to have, because you know, and all the viewers out there know, that at Real Vision, 
we're just deeply obsessed with the exponential age, with this profound shift that technology is taking us through, that we're only at the beginning of right now, and we're only at the beginning of understanding the implications of it. And central to my thinking about the exponential age, and I know a lot of people out there share this thinking, is information, the role of information, the role of data. And essentially, one of my key thoughts is that, you know, how do we characterize the exponential age? It's about the emergence of some kind of unified digital physical field where information becomes a part of the world around us. Uh, and before I get ahead of myself, we are going to get into all of that and more. Data is what we are here to talk about because data is your big obsession. So let's kind of rewind back to the beginning. Let's start right at the beginning. Tell the viewers a little bit about yourself, about the adventure you've been on, because I know it's a really interesting one that winds through, for example, open banking, how you came to this obsession with data, and then we'll really get into it, your big thesis and what you think is going on. But first, yeah, tell us a bit about you. It's really eclectic. So I think like anybody in an exponential age or anything innovative, they've had an eclectic background and I'm no different. So... I've been lucky. I worked across all my career from acquisition all the way through to manage. So I chose to come from industry, not consulting, um, which I think broadened my horizon. But then there was always a common thread, which was the role of data. It was almost following me around everywhere like a bad penny. Uh, I was lucky to be involved in open banking from the very beginning, helping write strategies for CMA nine banks, but then also then building open banking products, as well as then working on really, really large transformations, blockchain, all the cutting edge technologies, but like I said, data was a common thread throughout all of that story. And it's leading us to the conversation we're about to have today. Yeah, data has been the thread that's woven through so much of what you've done, including with open banking. Tell us then about, and this is a challenge, this is one of those tricky questions. Give us your core thesis in a nutshell. Why is data so important? Why are you so obsessed with it? What's happening now? And where is it taking us? That's a big idea. And then we'll dive in. So I think, I think you know, the, the big idea is that data is becoming liquidity. Data, in, in essence, is becoming owned by people um, and will become the next currency of our time. Um, it will become one of the most dominant things in our lifetime um, and is already on that trajectory. Um, you know, the exponential age is the name of this, and that's what we're living in. Um, six months ago, nobody had heard of ChatGPT. All of a sudden, it's part of everyday conversation. So my big thesis is that data will become a currency, and it will become owned by the very people that create it, generate it, and use it, um, which will fundamentally change everything that we know. Yeah, and I love this idea about data becoming a currency, data essentially becoming its own form of value. And that just taps so deeply into this idea that I keep coming back to when I write about the exponential age, when I talk about it on Real Vision. Something strange is happening to information. The nature of information, what information is, feels to me fundamentally to be changing. And that change underpins so much of what we talk about when it comes to the emergence of the exponential age. So there's that big thesis something fundamentally is changing when it comes to the nature of information and it takes us to a place where information becomes value information becomes currency 
I might even say information becomes money. I don't know if you would agree with that. Let's see if we can get to that place and if we can get to agreement on it. There's our big picture. Now I just want to rewind and go through step by step how we get to that place. And I think I'm right in saying that you would agree with me that it all starts in where we're at now, which is the beginnings of an incredible explosion in data volumes. And people know that this is going on. I think the man in the street and woman in the street knows this is happening. But I don't think they understand the extent of it, the mind-boggling extent of it, or what's driving it, really. So talk us through that. Talk us through this huge explosion in data volumes we're seeing now, why that's important. Um, I think what's happening is that we're seeing data that we've never seen before in our lives. Um, Non-verbal data is now becoming real. It's becoming a digital asset that none of us in our lifetime have ever seen. Um, as human beings, we've um, we've never been exposed to it. We we interact as people every single day. We operate with non-verbal cues and so on. But it's always been something that's ubiquitous. It's something that is just makes us human. What Apple did um, two weeks ago is they made a new channel and they made data something that effectively is now visible. Um, is now something that we can store. Uh, and we can link into human emotion and connect the dots. You know, we, you know, you hear statistics of you know hundreds and hundreds of zettabytes of data uh, by a certain date. But the reality is, we're now living in a world where we're going to create around about maybe seventy-four thousand zettabits of data um, in huge amounts of time. Um, and you know, this is an age that none of us ever imagined possible. Yeah, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I think there's a lot going on even in that because, as you say. You know, this data explosion, I mean, to my mind, it has two primary dimensions. First, as you talked about, there's radically new forms of data, like information, sorry, like emotional data, you know, facial recognition data, mood data, voice recognition data, and, and kind of mood patterns in voice, just incredible new forms of data. Then there's the sheer volume. You know, and if you look at the ID, like like you said, sort of the, the landmark iconic forecasts made by the International Data Corporation, the IDC, you know, and they trot, it's trotted out all the time, including by me in the past, 175 um, zettabytes of data by 2025, which is, which is, which is a huge, huge volume. When you think that one zettabyte of data, my understanding is, would take like five million years or something to download on a on a household super fast broadband connection but there are people like tim davies who we've seen on real vision in years past who believe that that is a massive underestimate and that as you said there will be tens of thousands of zettabytes of data by 2025 by 2030 and the crucial thing, I think, for people to realize, right, is that it's machines making this data. It's, you know, we're used to a world where people make data. It's going to be machines and objects and buildings making the data now, right? Yeah, correct. And Tim and I have talked about this often, ironically, and this is how I'm on this podcast, is through my relationship with Tim. Um, you know, the the, the statistics that Holon have, have anticipated this data is coming from so many different devices, IoT devices, Internet of Things, um, headsets, wearables. 
this data is becoming all around us, completely ubiquitous, and data that we've never, ever touched and seen. Um, and some of the numbers in Tim's reports, which are amazing, by the way, and I highly recommend them, even they only scratch the surface of the world that we're heading into, um, which I think is going to take many people by surprise, which is kind of the basis of the reason the thesis exists and the conversations I'm having with regulators and businesses around the world is that, look, this is no longer something you store in a database. This is actually something that's going to be living and breathing and organic um, and it's going to be something that's going to be driving economies. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I just think it's 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 so interesting and it's profoundly consequential the way so much of the world around us and so many objects um, and artifacts in the world around us will become creators of data in ways that people, most people just aren't thinking about right now. You know, in a world of, of electric cars and then autonomous vehicles, every car becomes a rolling supercomputer that just streams this tsunami of data about the physical environment. In a world where Amazon are adding like a thousand robots a day to their warehouses, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers and that whole infrastructure, again, just streams this tsunami of data constantly and you end up with just absolutely monumental data volumes where do we get to eventually with with the you know connected objects and the internet of things it feels to me that we're approach you know we're heading towards a world where just everything is connected to everything else is that fair yeah i think so i think i think um i always use the joke that we'll all become nodes um, because all of us are generating huge amounts of data. Um, and that's where we're going to end up. We're going to end up where data is going to be coming like a mist wrapped around us and it's going to be ubiquitous. Always on, we'll connect to it through wallets. Um, you know, this is the world we're heading to where it's even going to drive markets. Um, and, and honestly, when, when you speak to governments, you speak to businesses, they, they are, I guess, struggling to keep pace with the changes that are among us. And I think, you know, what's, what's going to be coming is already here and is starting to become found. Um, and I think, you know, the world, we're just literally scratching the surface, David, around where this is all heading. Yeah, yeah, right. Because there's, you know, as you've said to me, I think before, you know, a lot of the conversation becomes about sort of simple forms of data processing and data storage, but that's actually just a, a fraction of the conversation here. When you have volumes at this scale and when you have the, the physical environment as a kind of super network of networks, everything constantly streaming data. The nature of data changes and the relationship between the physical world and information changes. And that brings us, I think, to the big second stage, because what is the role that AI plays in all of this? When we have this super network, this you know, autonomous vehicles, robots, buildings, people with wearable devices, all connected to one another, all streaming data all the time. What role does AI start to play in that world? So I think AI will transition us um, to effectively a world where we will move away from acquiring knowledge to using knowledge to make decisions. I think AI will become the augmented worker um, and that will basically 
serve up the knowledge that people need to use to, to, to take action and decisions. That and we and you know we hear the talk about AI taking people's jobs, um, but the reality is, um, you know, AI is actually going to be augmented and become an employee of the organization. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's fair to say, right, that this has to. Ha if you have data volumes at this scale, this has to happen. Only AI can handle data volumes at that scale. Correct. Um, even if we think about, we'll be moving avatars and visuals. Um, that that will effectively do that. So you know, even a five G world, we'll be moving not just zeros and ones. It'll be images of people, avatars, huge volumes of data that no human will ever be able to read. Um, and our new knowledge worker, unfortunately for the world we're in, we have to be mindful and agree on is going to be not a human. It's going to be an artificial intelligence machine that is going out there and gathering the insight that a marketing agency would have done a few years ago is now being done by a machine. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the human element is, well, what decisions do I need to make on this data? And ultimately, how am I going to use that to drive my business forward? Or if you're a government, um, how am I going to use this data to make serious decisions of how I want to change the direction of my country or my city for, the, for the, my citizens or the people that inhabit it, society? Yeah, right. I mean, it's the, it, it, exactly. And I think AI as the as the new kind of fundamental knowledge worker is just such a profound shift. And it's one that, you know, it's impossible for anyone to get their head around right now. We're not we're not ready for it. It's impossible for us to fully conceptualize what that world looks like. But time and again, when I write about the exponential age, when I write about these big shifts that are coming, I find myself writing about the way information flows are weaving themselves through everything, including everything in the physical environment, and the way that necessitates a layer of intelligence, and it can only be artificial intelligence, over everything. And that leads me to that fundamental characterization that I talked about at the top of the show. You know, what is the exponential age? It's about the, it's about a strange new merging of information and the physical world, the digital space and the physical space. Information almost becomes a new kind of physical property. Intelligence almost becomes something akin to a new kind of energy that does a form of infrastructure that does work on all that information. I mean, is that, it, these are just deep, deep, profound shifts. And that's why I think your focus on data is so important. You know, what I, the big example I love to give is the way that, you know, if we build a renewable energy network uh, based on wind, solar, and high network, constantly streaming data all the time. The only way, which the coming edge of fossil fuels, the only way we manage that energy network via artificial intelligence, you know? So data AI become fundamental to the production, even just of energy, which is the foundation of everything, right? Yeah, agree. Um, and, and ultimately that will also become how we manage day-to-day -day living. Even if you look at 6G networks that are positioned for 10 years time, they all gonna be built with AI from the ground up, self-regulating, managing energy distribution, all of these aspects are going to be governed and changing the world as we know it. So you're absolutely right. Um, all of this is going to power a whole new economy and a whole new way of living. And data's at the center. Um, I often use the term smart economies. And ultimately, mm -hmm. that's, that's the basis of all of this. 
and data is just one of those components that are going to make this work. Yeah, I should say, I know we, I know viewers uh, will hear a little background noise from your end, and that's because, you know, you very kindly agreed to join us from a conference at which you've just given a keynote on these very subjects. So, I know, you know, I know. I, I'm, I'm battling, I have to be honest with the viewers, I'm battling battery issues, and I'm battling a room for the people at a seamless event. So I'm hoping and praying my battery lasts. This is, uh, so. this is how, um, yeah, this is how, this is how fresh the insight are, you know, you're, you're fresh from the stage to real vision to talk about this and it is deeply appreciated. So, so I'm going to tell the audience right now, I'm going to advise you, if I lose you, I will be back in five minutes. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be back. Uh, back. You'll be back. Be back. If only you had an AI to manage your laptop battery. So uh, we've got this super network of networks. We've got a network of networked physical environment, buildings, autonomous vehicles, people, objects, streaming relentless tsunamis of data at us. The role that AI is playing is as a is as a form of infrastructure, sort of managing those information flows, drawing insight out of them that we can use, or often that AI will just simply autonomously use that insight to, for example, manage the energy grid or manage, you know, supply chains. Uh, you'll have factory robots talking to autonomous vehicles about delivery times and about, you know, all of that kind of stuff. A networked world on a scale that is hard to fully conceptualize now. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Before we move on to the, to the, to the big next stage, you know, there's so much hype right now and so much conversation about generative AI in particular. Does that play a particular role here? in data creation and in the management of the data? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, look, the the AI story is, is fascinating because without data, there is no generative AI. There is no AI in the first place. There's no models to operate on. There's nothing that actually can actually be materialized. I think generative AI, as we know it to be getting closer to the, the predicted singularity, um, will generate its own data. Uh, for its own purposes and its own use cases. Um, so I think, yes, generative AI plays a role. We're not quite there yet. Um, starting to emerge, the conversations are happening. Um, but absolutely, it'll be a cornerstone to it because ultimately it'll be self-sustaining. Um, it will be consuming its own data, but also consuming data from ecosystems that other AI agents or even communities of people and practice are going to be creating. So all of these elements form the basis of of what are going to power next generation intelligence um, and data will be the cornerstone of that and AI in harmony in essence is I'm going to use the word and I it's taken me this long to use it metaverse and so on is is doesn't exist without AI and data um, without it there is no metaverse um, and there is no virtual reality and there is nothing in between so that's why all of this is so critical um, and those two elements the one you know the AI component and the data component are going to transform everything that we've known. Yeah. And this, I mean, and of course, we're going to get on towards the end to dive in a little bit into how this journey and how this epic story you're telling is investable. You know, what investors out there can do about it. But you've mentioned the word metaverse. We had to get there eventually. That does bring me on to the big third step because, yeah, as I say, we've got this, we've got this epic 
super network in the physical environment streaming data. We've got AI managing all that data. But then this huge third component steps into the story. And that is the emergence of virtual worlds, simulations of the metaverse, as we were talking about, like, in, you know, 21, 22. How does, what role does this play? How is this, let's just set the scene here. How is this connected to data? Um, and, and, yeah, why is data an important part of the emergence of virtual worlds and the metaverse and simulations? So I, I'm going to give a plug for my book now, because um, the book is called The Augmented World. And ultimately, what Apple did, as I said at the start, at the top of the hour, is that they created the next channel. And it won't be, in my view, yes, virtual reality will have a place, um, because it will give us the opportunity to go to new areas and new spaces, maybe before we go there. So Hong Kong Airport recently just built an entire metaverse of the airport, for example. Um, but actually, what will supercharge this whole world is augmented reality. Um, because it'll be the augmented and the shifting between the real world and the physical world in our own realities that'll actually make all of this come to life and make the metaverse a real thing in the real world. I don't think we'll be sitting in our rooms with big headsets on like Black Mirror. I think those days are not going to happen. Yes, they have their place. We may do meetings in this space. We may play games. But the reality is it's the glasses and the blending of the digital world with the physical world is what's going to make all this real. And you ask why data is important, because data is the thing that brings all of this to life. Data and information is being overlaid onto the real world. And it's ultimately, this is what we will interact with as human beings. Um, gone are the days where I will have to wander around a supermarket and wonder where things are because digital wayfinding will tell me the way. Cities will be geofenced, and effectively I will walk into a city and it will know it's me um, because the data will be from where I left it. And the augmented reality elements will navigate me around spaces. So my personal data, the data I carry me, my nonverbal data, the verbal data, all of this will be transformed into virtual augmented experiences. So this is the bit that no one is talking about, which in essence is the whole thing that powers this new world that we're going to be operating in is data. And AI will be the facilitator of that data. Um, and even the role of digital wallets in terms of how we store that data. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's the engine that's actually going to power all of these virtual physical worlds, be it digital twins, be it virtual cities, or even our augmented world is all going to be personalized, is all going to be driven, um, is be driven by all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's so true. And, you know, I <clears throat> I think the a big part of the story with, with virtual worlds and with the metaverse is we just saw this incredible wave of hype in 2020 and 2021. And obviously, you know, everything that transpired with Facebook and the name change and all of that. And that engendered an inevitable backlash, which we're still amid. And people have given themselves permission often to be like, oh, the metaverse, that was all like a load of rubbish. Like, I don't need to pay any attention to that. It was all a load of hype. It was all just a load of kids in Roblox or Fortnite. And it's such a gravely mistaken point of view like I, I understand where it comes from and I can understand how it can seem that way if you're not paying close attention you know I, I get that that's been the big narrative and it's easy to to swallow it but I would just really encourage people for example to look at what's happening now with NVIDIA's Omniverse technology where they're working for example with BMW to build simulations in virtual space of entire BMW factories, allowing BMW, BMW to just 
transform the way they operate utterly. You know, I mean, if you listen to BMW, they'll tell you that a huge part of their process and a huge challenge for them is constant reconfiguration of their factories around new car models and personalized car models and this and that. They're constantly reconfiguring factories and it takes days and it's really painful. Now they can do those reconfigurations in virtual space. They can simulate the entire factory, test reconfigurations in the simulation, get it right, and then roll it out. And that is just, if you listen to them, utterly transformative. And they're building a big like electric car factory in Hungary now. And they're just going to simulate the entire, the entire factory will have a kind of digital twin um, that they'll use to manage the physical factory. And we're going to see more and more and more of that via NVIDIA's Omniverse and via other, uh, you know, forms of virtual space. And exactly the same, data is the engine of it all. The reason they simulate the fact because they've connected every part of it, every part of it is breathing data. And they use that data to build a virtual model of the factory in virtual space that is like profoundly useful. So David, the, the virtual space is also giving them the ability to train people before the factory is even built. So the power of this is, look, it takes years to build a factory, even retool one. So imagine I can now personalize that whole training experience, regardless of level of experience. And using non-verbal data, I can understand if you didn't understand a particular piece of equipment, something didn't resonate with you. Maybe there's fear. So all of a sudden now I'm using non-verbal data inside a meta environment to actually drive personalized training and engagement. So even the things that BMW have done will be ultimately transformed by then making them augmented. Because now me as a human, I'm embedded into the into virtual spaces um, and I can engage with things even it's personal. No matter my learning style or my learning skill, even language will be translated into my eye light. So not even language will be a barrier. I can engage with maybe foreign workers in a factory that is completely virtual, or I can even bring experts teleported into my environment through holographic projections, which by the way is already happening. And again, all fueled by data. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I just think the profound usefulness of these virtual spaces and these simulations is is deeply underestimated right now. And that and that is why is one of the reasons why this idea that like, oh, the metaverse, like I can forget about that. It was all a load of hype is just so profoundly mistaken. Like, you know, you have, I mean, Amazon are using Omniverse to simulate their fulfillment centers. Like Kroger's, I think it is in the US is using Omniverse to simulate retail spaces and customer flows around retail spaces. And then as you say, once you can simulate these environments, you can do all kinds of stuff in them. You Exactly as you say, you can train your, you can reconfigure physical spaces. You can train human beings all of that kind of stuff it in the end where does this head it feels to me that this super network of connected objects allows us to build a form of mirror world like a one-to-one -one simulation of essentially the entire world in virtual space like is that is that the long-term direction of travel so i've been kicked out i think so i i think david you know everything is 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 radically going to change. Even with travel, our life, um, the whole data story is profound in, in many different ways. Um, 
so yeah, I, th I, I think, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of something that we, we couldn't have imagined. So you're breaking up. Sorry. That's why I didn't, I didn't cover that very well. No, 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 no problem. I know. Yeah. I can hear, I can hear a little bit of a commotion going on back there. Um, so like we, we talked about the emergence of this mirror world, you know, worlds in virtual space fueled by this endless tsunami of data. Let's get to, as I said, to the business end of your thesis, which is really about data becoming a new form of value, data becoming, I think it's fair to say, currency. I don't know if you would agree with me about data becoming a form of money. I don't know if that pushes it too far. But talk us through your central ideas here. Like, how does this happen in the world we've described? We've set the scene. How does this now play out? So I think, no, I'm comfortable. Like I said, dig into this a bit more. So I think, honestly, one of the interesting things that's come out of the Web3 world is the whole concept of tokenization, where, where data will become an asset. Um, so in essence, data will become a token. So we're already seeing Web3 companies who are turning data into tokens and trading them in smart contracts. So data itself will become tokenized like any other asset that's happening right now. To give you an idea, even today, so I'm at the Seamless event today. That's the event I was keynoting at today. And I literally, just before this call, had a conversation with someone building a data exchange where they're using smart contracts to move data around um, to save regulators with their reporting. So they're now tapping into Web3 technology to turn data into something that can be utilized and distributed. So in essence, as people start to physically own their own data, I will be trading it with you to allow you to use it. So let me give you a real world example to bring this to life. Today, I freely give my data away to credit check me. In the future, I might say, well, actually, I'll lend you my data for this credit check. And if you want any more data from me, you need to pay me through my smart contract. And my data is tokenized and has a timestamp of how long I'm going to lend that data to you for. And taking this even further, maybe a data trust is managing that data for me because actually now my bank or Amazon has now become a data trust because now I own my own data. Guess what? I'm not going to own it myself. I'm going to give it to someone that I trust who's going to look after it for me like a custodian um, in the traditional banking world that's going to be my fiduciary and is going to manage all my data as an asset in a portfolio that's effectively going to be managed. And this is the world that we're heading to. Um, and all of this is not by accident. It's these combinations of technologies the combinations of the Web3 world is basically lifting data up into a first-class citizen again, probably for the first time in our lifetime, where it will become a traded currency. And there are so many different players. I know we're going to come on to investing a bit later, but there are so many organizations now and technology companies emerging who are playing a role in all these different facets. Um, who are making this data item move like a currency across a virtual layer and it's basically going to become one of the strongest liquidity items that we've seen. I mean, it's mind blowing. And the that, so think of me as a consumer, the, the value of the data I have, right, is, is, is what? It's because it's behavioral data about, you know, and taste data and preference data and identity data that tells organizations who I am and what I like and what I've bought in the past, what I've done in the past, what I'm interested in. Is that the kind of data you're talking about that will be valuable to, you know, businesses out there that will essentially pay me for my data? Is that 
Is that the big picture here or is that just one part of what we're talking about? I think it's one part. Yes, that is definitely one use case because today we just give it away freely. Uh, right. You know, all, all jokes considering, I'll go onto Facebook and I'll, I'll give my data away to see what I look like when I'm 60. Um, no one really understands that the terms and conditions of giving your data away for that picture is giving someone access to your data to do all sorts with from an advertising and so on. So yes, there's the taking the data back and putting it into my hands as a consumer and me deciding how I'm going to use that and how I'm going to spend it. That's definitely one use case. The second use case is I use my data to generate experiences and environments and virtual spaces. So companies will reach out to you because your data is valuable. And I think this is an important topic when we talk about data value. And now Tim and I have talked about this a lot from Hold On in the sense of, I know he talks about data storage and it's running out and we need to only keep what's important. But then as you start digging down that rabbit hole, not all data is equal. So some data will be valuable in utility and some data will be value in exchange. And not, data, not all data will be valuable in the same environment because A, there's probably too much of it. So the value, to, it's probably like diamond, the value of that data is worthless to me because there's too much of it. It's like water. Whereas in some environments, data is so scarce, that same data set all of a sudden now is valuable to that environment. So we will start to see new value systems for data. We will see so many different use cases where data, which was previously freely available, is no longer in people's control other than mine as the consumer. So all the experiences we take for granted, all the uses of data that's created is all of a sudden going to become an item of scarcity. Um, even though it's in abundance, its scarcity will be driven by the people that own it. So you have the aspect of this that's sort of like my personal data, behavioral data, purchase history, taste and preference data, media consumption, all of that is valuable to third-party organizations. Basically, you want to sell me stuff and they're going to start, and I will start to have ways to control that data, to own that data and draw value from it, to essentially license it or sell it to third parties. And I'm fascinated by the other big dimension of this you talked about, which is if we're saying that virtual worlds and virtual spaces are fueled by data, you know, they're constructed out of data, essentially, then perhaps my data or the data my house is creating or the data all the houses on my street are creating or whatever it is, are needed to help fuel a simulation or a virtual world in virtual space. And you'll have organizations essentially saying, you know, let me use your data as the building blocks of the virtual of the simulation or the virtual space I want to construct. Have I got that right? Is that that's absolutely spot. And this is a conversation I have with customers all the time is that, look, everybody talks about digital twins. There's this concept of a connected digital twin where I can bind twins to solve a problem. But let's be honest, not every business in the world is going to create a digital twin. The reality is, though, they may look to people like you and I to say, well, actually, I need your data to finish off my digital twin because I'm trying to solve this particular problem and your data would be useful. Or if you're a business, maybe you hold transactional data, for example. So yeah. maybe transactional data might be interesting to someone who's trying to run scenarios, maybe for a future city, for example. They're trying to understand the influx of people coming into more urban areas. So what does that mean for the financial system? So you may be a bank, you may be a financial institution, and I can give you my data as an API. So I'll give you that API, and then you can, I'll charge you for it, and then you can then use that within your simulation. So what we're starting to see is almost like new economies emerge based on the data that businesses just hold anyway. 
um, where they can now turn that into an API, they can give it to an organization, and all of a sudden it's now a new revenue light. Eventually it becomes a new business. So that's either for the business angle or for the consumer, they're playing an active part um, in all of this in terms of their contributions, in terms of maybe helping organizations. And even maybe it doesn't have to be you know, a business, a commercial business. It could be a public sector, a public service. So it could be a city that's creating a virtual version of itself to understand or solve a particular public problem. And that me as an individual, I may want to be part of that, which then speaks to the power of community and the role of your data in DAOs and so on. And by the way, there are already things called, um, the, um, I forget the name, but um, they pull data together, data unions, there you go. So a data union already exists in the Web3 world where people, like-minded people, pull personal data together into a data pool and it's sold on a smart contract on an exchange and everybody in that pool is rewarded. These are the sorts of models that are emerging um, that are going to power some of the things that, you know, we've been talking about for the last 40 or so minutes. Um, but the important thing is that all of this is real. This is happening right now. And the signals that we're seeing are pointing to something much more profound, um, which is why I'm excited by all of this and, optimi yeah. and optimistic about it. But at the same time, I'm fortunate to be having this conversation with you and your viewers because I also want to speak to regulators and I also want to speak to the people who need to now be on the front foot and be the enablers of this ecosystem versus trying to play catch up. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's so much going on in there. I think the emergence of, as you say, of platforms um, that empower people to find others who they could combine their data with. And then the value of that combined data is sort of greater than the sum of the parts, essentially to kind of create a sort of instant pop-up sort of data business with others because you know you have a fragment of data they have fragments of data and if you put it all together you get the entire puzzle that's deeply valuable to i don't know whoever like british airways or ibm or you know the the, the central government that's trying to plan the road system because you know they want they want the, the, the data that your car is constantly streaming because they want to simulate the you know, the London road system in real time, 24 seven in virtual space. And they need your data to do that. I think that's going to, you know, that's going to be massive. So this remakes the economy, right? And it remakes the banking system. Am I, am I right? And then there's huge regulatory questions around all of them. Yeah. And I also, so I'm glad you brought up the financial system and it changes things because let's just think how the money markets work today, right? I have a need. So I am the demand side of the market. Um, the merchants and retailers now are the supply side because they meet that demand. And then the market will dictate the value of that item. Now let's move into a world where I own the data. I am now the supply side. The, mar the, the merchant is now the demand because now I own the data. And then the market will determine the value of that data, whether that data is valued in bits and bytes or it's valued at a token level. And today we exchange goods and services through fiat currency. In the world of tomorrow where people own their own data, guess what? We'll be using tokens and smart contracts as our means of how we exchange that. So all of this has the potential to, to, to basically turn, and this is kind of takes us full circle. Um, this is probably a whole another conversation altogether, but this is really unpacking what we know to be value. This is really the nub of all of this, is that what we know to be value is changing. 
data is becoming a form of value, as is our reputation, as is cryptocurrency, as even our core values themselves will be a form of value that will be exchanged. And data is one of this magic circle, if you like, of universal value exchange and how value is fundamentally changing. And a lot of this is being driven by the Web3 world, but I think also this is being driven by a generation and a segment of consumer that most businesses haven't met yet, but are already engaging in this world of the Roblox and so on, where their view on value is very different to you and I. Right. Yeah, exact, exactly that. I mean, and I think, you know, if people could, you know, not just take a look at, for example, you know, what's happening in Fortnite or what's happening in Roblox or what's happening in, you know, Meta's Horizon world or whatever, and just dismiss it, but try and think about the underlying principles here and the, the as you say, the underlying signals that those examples are sending us. It does point to just a profound shift that, as you say, what at heart is this shift? It's about remaking of fundamental things. And one of the fundamental things being remade is, is yeah, what is value itself? What is valuable? What is value? And I just think it's so deeply important to understand that on a, on a sort of underlying level, when information becomes a part of the world around us, when the when the when the infosphere, the world of information and the physical world kind of merge, information becomes a form of value. That essentially would be the way I would sum up this shift on a deep, like philosophical level. If that's not too grandiose, <laughs> no, no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think I think look, we've been on this journey for a long time. It's just we've never realised it. Um, you know, the reality is the metaverse. All of the things that we talk about weren't by accident. Like virtual reality has existed since the 90s. Um, open banking has been around for seven, eight plus years. Um, 5G networks have appeared on the horizon. Machine learning and AI, you could argue, are maybe 20 plus years old. So all of these things have converged at exactly the same time. And they've given us the ability now to, through convergence, through exponential growth and combination, have given us what we know to be the augmented world and virtual realities. And all of these elements and pieces have just basically given us the, the new materials to re, re, reshape what value is, but also how we interact as people, which is why I keep going back to what happened two, three weeks ago was incredibly profound. Um, what Apple did was they created the next channel. That's ultimately what they did. Um, they also reshaped what we know, how we prove our identities through our eyes. Um, you know, they introduced so many new technologies uh, which I'm not sure most people could really grasping what this really means. Because like they did with the iPhone, like they did with the iPad, and what other industries have done before us, they've now created a pivotal moment for us, which yeah. is in the next two to three years, yes, Apple, they're not going to be the sole driver of this ecosystem, but they just did something incredibly profound. They put this into the public conversation for the first time. People now will be talking about this and expecting these experiences. Um, you know, and this is the world that we're moving to. And, you know, I, I truly believe regulators and businesses are not yet prepared for what is coming, um, which, as I think you've alluded to, is a tsunami of data, which is going to need to be managed or rethought in terms of how we look at it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I agree. I think the Apple Vision Pro could turn out to be a hugely important moment here if they really have nailed the user experience when it comes to augmented reality. 
you know, this ability to drop a, a digital layer over the physical environment, which is essentially exactly what, what I'm talking about, what we're talking about, the merging of digital and physical. So you have, you know, obviously the physical environment around you, and then you can drop digital artifacts, a, di a digital layer over that environment, and the two essentially become one. And then anything that's manifested in your data, you can manifest as a sort of object out there in your view. And then you can share that with others. And the two just start to, to merge in really important ways. I mean, this becomes, you know, speculative, but do we get to a place, in your opinion, where a person's data or an average person's data is more valuable than their labor, than their work? You know, is this part of the, is this part of how we approach some form of like post work world? Yeah, I think I think. It does, um, but I also think there's a cautionary tale there too. So we still live in the world of financial inclusion um, as an issue in terms of people don't have access to smartphones. There's still a large percentage of the population that are unbanked because they don't have identities. I think what we'll start to see as devices get smaller, um, you know, we will solve that inclusion problem when it comes to data. But I think in the medium to short term, we still have a sustainability responsibility. And I don't mean the environment. I mean, giving everybody access to create a data footprint, everybody access to monetize their data or have something that's valuable, uh, because there's a real danger that we'll create an even bigger divide than we see in financial services. And I think there's a, there's, this is where the regulator piece comes in, which is, because I think the other piece, um, you know, to keep on the thread is people with accessibility needs. You know, how do you create an inclusive piece when it comes to data? Because these experiences are real, right? And if you're amplifying these and you've got an accessibility condition, you know, these are some of the things that we need to cause to, to tease out. Um, but you're right. Data will become something incredibly valuable and more important than labor. And could it become a form of UPI? Could it be a basis of, look, you know, you have more data than, than this person. So I'll give you this. And that could be the way that you navigate the new world. Um, I think all bets are off right now and everything is up for grabs. Um, I think what, what we're witnessing is the changing of the guard. So it's no longer about how powerful the computer is. It's no longer how much storage we need. It's actually what's the value in the data and how can we keep this liquidity on hand and how can we use it effectively? I think yeah. once we solve that issue, then we'll probably solve the question of is this more important than labor? Because then we'll truly as a society understand the value of this thing. But which, by the way, we've neglected since we first created the computer. Right, right. And this is why I think coming at the exponential age from the angle of or through the lens of, you might say, data and information is so fruitful because you end up in deep, deep questions around what is the nature of value? What is the nature of uh, and meaning of work and the function of work or human labor in our societies you know big big questions that form a part of the kind of big picture puzzle that any macro economist someone like Raoul you know is trying constantly trying to put together constantly trying to make sense of the big picture okay I mean we could talk you know we could talk for hours and we were like we're gonna we're, we're of course gonna get you back yeah um and we I, I just wonder what I just want to add, by the way, you, you talked about data numbers and I didn't give you any stats and, I'm, and that's probably because of me moving around and batteries dying. But let me just give you some numbers just to sort of really back some of this up. Um, so we'll be by 2025 creating a data footprint every 18 seconds. 
So I just wanted you to comprehend that number. 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years. That's a fact. While you and I have just been having this conversation for the last minute, 5 million people search Google. So I just, you know, just bear that in mind of some of the numbers. These are just absolutely mind-boggling numbers. You know, the, the numbers are comparable. Well, they're numbers that we've never seen in our lifetime. Um, and this is the stuff that's, that's starting to hit home. And, you know, the exponential age is, is, is the right vehicle for this because the numbers are exponential in terms of the growth that we're seeing. And it's going to create markets. It's going to bring down businesses who just don't have the capability to participate. You know, we, we talk to clients all the time in my current role about the emergence of open data. But most companies are still struggling to deal with the world of open payments and open banking and so on. So there's a real danger here that as the regulator continues to push the dial, businesses will fall further by the wayside because they don't have compelling value propositions and abilities to tap into this new value exchange and this new form of liquidity. Right. And for anyone who's listening, who's, you know, as I always say, skepticism is good. You know, I like to come from a place of skepticism. You know, we need to interrogate everything we hear right now um, as we try to make sense of this enormous shift. Um, But for anyone who's just deeply skeptical about this idea that, you know, data has value, data can become a form of currency, I just really encourage them to look at how, you know, already it's ancient history that multi, you know, hundred billion dollar businesses have been built on people's personal data. And I'm, of course, thinking primarily about Facebook. You know, the money printing machine at Facebook or at Meta now is still the advertising business. And that's a business built on selling, you know, organizations from huge corporations to kind of mom and pop, you know, little corner stores access to data that lets them target advertising it's a data business uh the data has real value and if, and like we all we all know that and there's been so much conversation about the ethics of that and how that's played out but think about the deeper implications of it which i think you are doing such a brilliant job of tapping into now i want to go to some audience questions and i want to get to them in particular because they include the big question that i'd promised you know we talk about Gordon Foreman says, I mean, we should deal with this one quite quickly, you know, uh, just like the technical difficulties we had earlier, you know, what happens if the internet goes down in this brave new world of a, of a, uh, of a, you know, super network of networks and data as value? I always use this great analogy when I excuse the background noise because the conference is closing. Um, I was this great analogy. So if you think of the financial crisis, governments knew, knew what to do because Rightly or wrongly, they printed more money and it was, a, it was a thing that we invented, right? We invented money. So in theory, we know what to do in principle. I would argue if Google fell over tomorrow, we wouldn't know what to do because it's so ubiquitous and part of our life. Google is a great example. And it's a great question, by the way, because Google is a great example of how pervasive data has become. None of us can probably get from A to B without Google Maps. Guess what? That's all powered by data. No one ever reads the terms and conditions, by the way, but they're too busy because the value exchange is too high. Um, our spelling, most people wouldn't have a job if they could, without Google because they wouldn't be able to spell. Um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of the things like the internet has become so ubiquitous and part of our life, as you saw earlier, like I, I lost a connection 
um, albeit for a very short period, but it was a big disruption. So I think a lot of this is going to require, this is the infrastructure story, which is the next generation infrastructures. And I say infrastructures because there's not one. There's going to be many that will be up and running that this data layer is going to run across. Yeah, and, and many networks, whether it's I walk into a city and I'm connecting to a drone that's going to be my network, whether it's a 5G network, whether it's a 6G network, it's going to be many, many infrastructures that are going to be up and running that are going to ensure that people like me don't lose my laptop connection. Yeah, right, right. And 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 this talk of infrastructure, the infrastructure that underpins all this and allows it to happen, uh, my sense is probably forms a part of the answer to this second question. You know, the question I had, Bob Geyer says, you know, yeah, sure, data has value. You know, the challenge or part of the challenge for the, the real vision viewers out there, part of the reason they tune in are, what are the investable parts of this journey? You know, what should I do about it as an investor? Now, I don't think we're about to give like super concrete investment advice here, right? But what are your broad brushstroke thoughts on, on those questions? I mean, I would tend to think about the infrastructure that allows all of this to happen. Yeah, so I'll, I'll bear with me in the noise, by the way. Sure. So there's a, there's a few areas that actually, they're already in, in stock exchanges markets that you can invest in today. So the companies like Matterport, you know, the people who are building, the invaders of this world who are building the platforms that we're going to operate on. But I also think there's some sort of untapped areas. So, you know, cybersecurity, um, cryptography, um, you know, the protection of data moving between devices. You know, I know of companies that Google are trying to acquire who have solved the security problem when data moves between machine to machine down to literally a field level. So the whole, it's a very, you know, Warren Buffett will say, you know, it's that sometimes the boring ones are the best ones. So, you know, the enablers of this world are where I would be looking to invest. Yes, the experiences are interesting in terms of the virtual spaces, but what about fraud? What about, you know, cybersecurity? What about all the things that are going to make and fuel this place work? They're the ones that for me are the interesting players because eventually, so I compare this to the days of the Rockefellers of the world and the Carnegie's where we're building the new railroads. The difference is where we're going, we don't need trains. These are digital railroads where data is going to run across these railroads. And in the Web3 world, what's happening is different companies are fighting for different railroads, whether it's FX, border, uh, cross-border, whether it's blockchain, whatever protocols are going to win out. These will eventually become the railroads. And then effectively, what the things that we've been talking about are the business models, are the data that will run ubiquitously across these railroads 24-7, which is, um, is the big difference. And, right. and that's the world that we're heading to. Right. Yeah, it does. It is kind of hilarious sometimes that, you know, in these, in these exponential age conversations so often, you know, it becomes, it's, it's just fascinating and it's so exciting. And then some of the... the um, some of the conclusions about investment can feel sort of deeply unsexy. You know, you go down to the infrastructure level. You know, I always come back to, you know, the providers of compute power, you know, the chip makers, um, the cloud service providers. Like, think about the people that need to exist and that we need much more of to enable all of this to happen. And then I think, start, you know, concerns around security, you know, security, privacy and all of that layer of infrastructure is absolutely key as well so there are some sort of broad brushstroke thoughts um for people out there thinking you know what does this journey mean for me as an investor okay look michael thank you so much for this conversation like i say we're you know we're we're, we're definitely going to have you back there's yeah. we, we painted 
I think a broad yeah. brushstroke picture here that there's huge opportunity um, in future videos to dig into. To wrap up, just remind people, tell people a tiny bit about, you know, where they can find out more about you and your work, the name of the book, when it's out. Yeah. So LinkedIn is, again, it's a very unsexy place. Uh, but LinkedIn <laughs> is probably the best place to find me. Um, in terms of the book, um, I'm humbled by the whole thing. So many people are helping me sort of piece. And again, it talks to the fact that people are starting to care about this. So the book is called Data and Augmented Worlds, um, The Evolution of Value. Uh, which hopefully is due for spring next year. Um, I'm really fortunate to have people like Brett King be contributing. A uh, huge thanks to him for making the book happen. Um, he will close out on smart economies. Um, I've got interviews with people building digital clearing houses around the world. Um, really, really painting a story of you know the origins of of how we got here to ultimately where we're going. And the, and the book is is aimed at leadership, governments giving them the takeaways. This is not an academic book. This is a book that's going to take them on a journey to where data effectively becomes the basis of a smart economy. Um, so that comes out next year. There obviously there'll be lots of material in the public domain, obviously further conversations like this, which, you know, this is never going to stop like the exponential age. It doesn't slow down. So whilst the book comes out next spring, um, the world is still moving. Um, so I'll be having lots of these conversations in the public domain. Um, as I am doing with regulators and governments and, and public sector and, and businesses to sort of make them aware of this journey. Fantastic. Yeah. Book out next spring, data and augmented worlds. As is so often the case, Real Vision got there first. Uh, Real Vision got in there early, but I think next spring would be a fantastic time for another conversation, by which time let's just see what world we are, we are occupying uh, when it comes to you know generative ai data volumes the apple you know vision pro further I, I think we'll have exited the kind of metaverse winter by then and people will have a whole different view on all of that but for now michael clark thank you so much for joining us fascinating conversation thanks for bearing with us through the through the conference distractions it's deeply appreciated and see you again soon lovely to see you take care now What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.